says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And Father, we humbly ask now as we continue in our worship of you and of your precious son, Jesus, that you just continue to direct us by your spirit as we open the word of God now as an act of worship and prepare to then celebrate communion. We just ask that you would work in us and among us. We ask that you would prepare us and give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church this morning assembled through this particular portion of the word of God. You know what it takes for each one of us, Lord. Prepare us mentally, spiritually, emotionally, in every way that we can just be receptive and be able very clearly to hear what the voice of God is saying to each one of us through the word of God this morning. So prepare us, Lord. We ask your Holy Spirit who inspired the word would now be our teacher and the one who administered to our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the story is told of a young attorney who had recently graduated and passed his bar and so forth and was interviewing for an opportunity to work at this very prestigious firm. And as he was being asked some questions and kind of trying to express his value and what he thought he could bring to the company and the different ways he could be an asset, uh, the older, uh, wiser attorney who had many years, one of the top executives, after he went on for a while with his spiel, said to him, well, what then? And in nervousness, he then continued to share a few more things and how he then hoped to maybe ultimately be such a great asset that they'd even make him a partner in the firm and a, a lifelong career there that could be very successful. And the attorney uh, that was listening to him, the older man, paused and he said, well, what then? And he said, well, I hope ultimately serve to develop such a good reputation and become well-established and really begin to begin to develop a good income for myself. And certainly I, I hope to be married and, and maybe someday have children as well. And he said, well, well, what then? And he said, well, I hope ultimately after raising a family to make a good living for myself and after many years to, to be able to retire well and have a secure living for my family and enjoy the latter years of my life in retirement somewhere maybe really fantastic. And he said, well, well, what then? And he said, well, honestly, sir, I, I guess at some point I'm going to die. And he said, well, what then? What then? You know, I think that's a really good question. And honestly, I think it pertains very well to the passage of Scripture in front of us this morning that we're going to look at together. Hebrews 9 is really a section that deals with the total sufficiency and the complete effectiveness of the accomplishment of Jesus' death. Jesus' substitutionary death, and by that we mean the fact that he took the punishment in death for our sin on our behalf. And there's great emphasis in Hebrews chapter 9, if you read yourself through it, there's great emphasis upon the value and the subject of the blood of Christ and upon the death of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us how in God's economy and God's standard that everything was purified by blood. 
The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, the life of the flesh was in the blood. And by God's economy and the way that God established things, and he has the right as the creator, there always needed to be a sacrificial and a substitutional death of that which was innocent to atone for that which was guilty. And this was just something that God had established in order to atone for or satisfy the wrath against the guilt of humanity's sin. God always required the death of an innocent substitute and the shedding of blood for the payment of that guilt. In fact, verse 22 of this chapter, you notice at the end of it there, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is, there's no release from penalty. There's no release from what's deserved. Forgiveness from the punishment that is deserved was necessary to be paid for by the blood sacrifice of an innocent substitute. And when we look at the Old Testament, as we've been studying it on Wednesday nights, we see that under the Old Covenant, the priests had to repeatedly offer sacrifices for sin. And there was this constant offering of innocent substitutes, blood sacrifices, an innocent substitute would die at the altar and the blood would be shed to make atonement for sin. And this, this was a very strong, powerful indicator to the worshiper who was the guilty sinner that would come forward with their animal when they would present their sacrifice because they would watch this innocent animal substitute, they would watch its throat be slit and watch it bleed out in front of them and they would watch and it was a very strong, powerful thing to their heart and mind communicating this animal, this innocent substitute is having to die. Something has to die for you and able to be forgiven before God. And it was a very clear picture for them that drove home the reality of the gravity of sin, that sin wasn't a trivial thing, that, that, that the blood of another had to be shed and death had to happen for forgiveness to take place. And every year on the Day of Atonement, that great day of the Hebrew atonement for the Jewish people, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest as well would go in with the blood of an innocent substitute into the Holy of Holies. And there, as he would make atonement for the sins of the people, he was appeasing God's wrath to cover the sins of the people. Well, under the new covenant, Jesus came as the final lamb of God to deal once for all with the sin issue. Jesus came not to just temporarily cover and momentarily satisfy the sins of humanity, but Jesus came to make complete and total payment once for all for the sins of the whole world. That's why when John the Baptist looked at Jesus, he pointed to him, remember, and he said of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, they would temporarily cover sin, but then another sacrifice, another sacrifice. There was a constant need for the shedding of blood. But, but John said when Jesus came, he was the ultimate perfect fulfillment, the Lamb of God, the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. That's why we read in verse 25 and 26, if you look at the text with me regarding Jesus, it says this as we build to our verses. It says, not that he, Jesus should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the most holy place every year with the blood of another, for then he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, look at this, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away forever, the idea is, 
put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So notice, the Bible clearly teaches that the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, giving himself in death, shedding his blood, was fully sufficient from God's standpoint to put away completely the payment and the penalty of sin once and for all. The Bible knows nothing, and this is very important because in some religious structures, there is the conveying of the idea that the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, must perpetually be broken and sacrificed again and again. And listen, we need to recognize that runs in contradiction to the Word of God. The Word of God refutes the idea of what is referred to, that doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the indication that every time the religious leader is breaking the bread or giving the cup, that miraculously the, the life of Christ is being, again, suffered and, and offered once again. Jesus' body is being broken and his blood's being shed. Listen, that to, to a great degree flies in the face of what the Word of God teaches, which says, once for all Jesus sacrificed Jesus gave himself and the sufficiency of the death the suffering the shed blood of Jesus Christ was so permanent so complete so satisfactory it says he does not need to keep suffering often he doesn't need to keep doing that his work was finished completed that is what's biblical the idea that somehow Jesus must perpetually suffer contradicts really what the Word of God says. And God wants us to know what Jesus did was 100% complete. It was effective. It was finalized. It was permanent to pay for the debt of my sin and your sin. And Jesus' sacrifice of himself, listen, never need be repeated. And it never need be added to by any religious ritual effort or observance at all. Now, with this concept of the one-time death of Jesus as being God and man, the mediator for us, creating a permanent result and taking care of that, with that one-time death idea, the writer goes on in verse 27, look at it, saying, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of of many. So notice here, we learn a few lessons regarding death, regarding judgment, regarding the fact that Jesus' work took care of what happens after our death and the judgment that we're going to face. And even at the end there, verse 10, the reality that Jesus will return a second time for his believers and followers. Note with me first in verse 27, the first part of it, the first thing we see declared very clearly there is it says in the Bible that it's appointed for men to die once. It's appointed for men to die once. That reminds us of our own mortality and that our physical life on this earth does not and will not last forever. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter 5 and in other places that sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, the first representative of humanity. Sin entered the world through one man and thus death came through sin. And so therefore, Sin and death have now spread to all of humanity. Adam could only pass on to the rest of humanity, which were all honestly descended from the same person. He could only pass on to the rest of humanity what he experienced, which was sin and death, which had entered in as a result of his disobedience to God. So now this plague, if you would, of being born sinful 
has passed on to every one of us. In a sense, we've all been born with a terminal disease. It's called sin. It's cancerous. It gradually destroys all of our lives and is the thing that causes us to be terminal mortal beings. We all die physically. And so therefore we all, in a sense, struggle with this result of, of being sinful. That's why we have to teach our kids to do what's right, not what's wrong. Never had to teach any one of my three daughters. Here's how you, here's how you really act like a smart aleck. Here's how you get disrespectful or here's how you fight with your sister. They just naturally were automatically very good at it. They just, they, we know how to be sinful because that's our propensity. We're not good by nature. The Bible says we're sinful by nature. That, that, that's evident in the way a child is being raised and the fact that we find ourselves inclined towards doing what's wrong not towards doing what's right as human beings. We're all sinful by nature. And as well, because we are sinful mortal beings, we're destined to die physically as the result of that. And here the Bible is telling us very directly, it's appointed for men to die once. Physical life as a human being has an expiration date. Ten out of every ten people die. Statistics have never changed. Every one of us must recognize our own mortality that at some moment our physical life is going to come to an end and there is an appointment known only unto God what that day or what that hour is. It's an appointment you cannot find out about in advance. It's an appointment that you have to keep and that you do not know the day and the hour of. That at some point our life will come to a close and we're going to experience death and that's an appointment that we cannot escape. And listen, to some degree, we should not be surprised by, we should not be shocked by, we should not be confused when we see the doorway of death approaching. Because the reality is, th this is realism. It's appointed for everyone to die. We may not like to discuss it, we only may want to face it at a memorial service or a funeral service. But part of living properly is realizing one day your life is going to end. To some degree, you're really not ready to live until you're ready to die. And part of recognizing the Bible teaches preparing for death is one of the most important parts of how you live your life. Becoming ready for that appointment. The end of our physical life on this earth, notice, is a permanent thing. He says it's appointed for men, take note, verse 27, to die once. One time. It's appointed to die once. That totally blows out of the water. Again, the idea of something like reincarnation. You're not coming back as a kitty cat or somebody else or you know somebody, oh, I wish I could come back like them. I hope next time I get that figure or I, or I get to be born in a, as a rich person. Look, you're not. You, you live, you die once. The Bible says one time, one life to live, you get one life, you die one time, bringing a permanent end to this physical life's existence. So therefore, look, with understanding that as well, that kind of means for all of us, each day is a gift of God. It is a gracious gift of God every day that we live again because tomorrow's existence is no guarantee. The Bible gives no guarantee to any human being beyond the very day and the hour that you're living in. And to live with that awareness is a very healthy thing. 
it's a it's a healthy way to be able to see and process life that our appointment with death could be on the next calendar day so with that as an application for our lives that that should affect how we live our lives that should affect how you and i maybe have a value system the fact that one day i'm gonna die it's appointed for me to die so that should affect my value system that should affect my way of viewing certain things maybe what is important and what's really not so important and maybe what's important in a given situation or what's really not that big of a deal in a given situation the fact that we are mortal beings and that life does come to an end you know in some ways let me say this as well especially as american people let us be careful we're not so busy trying to make a living that you never make a life you know one man said before only in america do they have a mountain called rush moor <laughs> i mean that's very fitting it really is and it's kind of sad the reality again god even with the death reality listen he doesn't want us to be living in fear and dread of death oh it's such a dreadful subject don't talk about death i don't believe god wants us to live in fear and torment and dread of death and and so therefore fight to try and survive forever like a lot of people do live on this earth like they're going to somehow beat the death process first of all listen that's futile the bible says right there it's appointed to die you're not going to miss the appointment you can do all the juicing and exercising and everything you want and look good when you die but you're going to die you may look better than someone else, but it's going to happen. And so because of that, death, if properly prepared for, can really become not a, a enemy, but it can actually become your servant because it becomes the doorway to the afterlife, to what's beyond this life. Though our body is going to die physically, the Bible teaches, we are eternal beings and our spirit continues once it's released from this physical body in an eternal dimension that's why he goes on to say in verse 27 though it's appointed to die once after this notice there's something after death after this the judgment that is after we die physically we are going to face our creator we are going to stand before our God, our maker, to answer for our life. He says, after this, the judgment. That word judgment used there speaks of, of separating or making a distinction. By evaluating something properly and seeing what's evident, you then make a judgment, a distinction, a separation between right and wrong. Or maybe between innocent and guilty. Or a separation between this kind and that kind. That's the idea there. We're going to go through a judgment as we stand before God and God will make a distinction, a separation, right and wrong, this kind, that kind. God, our creator, is going to hold us personally accountable for our life on this earth and what we did do and what we did not do. And really, we're each going to stand before God alone to answer for our life and be judged accordingly. Most specifically, listen, most specifically what we did regarding God's offer of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. Depending upon what God determines by his perfect evaluation and judgment of our soul, we're either going to experience eternal torment and punishment in the lake of fire forever and ever we're going to experience eternal glory in the kingdom of god and in heaven and in the presence of the lord those are the two distinctions that are going to happen as the result of that judgment 
It tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that Jesus is going to tell some to go away into everlasting punishment and others who are righteous into eternal life. Listen to Jesus' words. It says, Jesus is going to say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you cursed in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice, the everlasting fire isn't even prepared for humanity. God doesn't want humanity to go there. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But if people don't want to go to heaven and they don't want to follow or submit to Jesus, then God isn't going to force them to spend eternity with them. He will allow them to go to the other option, which is the everlasting fire. The Bible says, Revelation 20, verse 15, those not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever. The only other option, Jesus says, those who are not cast into everlasting fire, Jesus, Matthew 25, is going to say to others, it says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Paul speaking to the believer regarding his life and really what it means to be a follower of Christ. Philippians 1, Paul's words say this regarding his own life. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. See what Paul says? He says, I live for Christ now. And if you live for Christ, then he says, when you die, it's not loss, it's gain. Because he says to be with Christ is far better than what life is like here on this earth. 2 Corinthians 5, for the believer who dies, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord instantaneously, entering into the presence of the Lord. So there is this clear separation and distinction God makes as he judges each human soul. And that distinction is some are welcome into heaven, the presence of God, others are cast into hell. What happens regarding our eternal destiny is determined at this moment of judgment after death. That's what determines. And the determining factor of where we end up eternally is what choice did we make with our free will regarding believing in and, and receiving and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look what verse 28 says, that Christ was offered by God to do what? Offered once to bear the sins of many. See, the Bible teaches we all sin against the holy God that makes us guilty. So we have a human dilemma. Our sinfulness makes us unworthy to be in the presence of God. And we all have a level of sinfulness in our lives. We all fail. We all make mistakes. So God lovingly took initiative to make provisions for us to be able to be forgiven and have access into his presence. It tells us in Isaiah 53 regarding Jesus. It says, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible says, all we like sheep, we all go astray, every one of us. We all falter, we all make mistakes, we have a level of guilt in our life for things we've said, done, and thought we shouldn't have. And, but it says that God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That's the idea there of the substitutionary death of Jesus. God punished his son. God allowed Jesus to suffer the wrath the righteous punishment of God for my sin, for your sins, so that we could be liberated and Jesus rose from the dead as the living Savior with this completed work. He now offers us this gift of eternal life. It's from Jesus. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of our sin is death, what we deserve for our sin, 
death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus offers us this gift and it's what we do in response with that truth and reality that determines what's going to happen in the judgment that we face one day. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, very famous verse, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And then he said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, might be spared. So the determining factor simply becomes, do I, do you believe that Jesus bore your sin personally? It says he bore the sin of many, but do you believe? Do you personally believe as a sinner before a holy God that God loved you and sent Jesus for you and Jesus bore your sin and that you want Jesus to save you from your sin. That determines your eternal destiny, your willingness to believe upon that, receive that for yourself. It says in John 3, he who believes the Son has everlasting life, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Jesus wanting to assure the believer, the follower of Christ, regarding no matter how sinful we have been, listen to Jesus' great assurance. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. No matter what you've done, how bad you've failed, the, the grievous mistakes, if you have your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you and you believe in him and that he did it for you, the Bible says that you've been released from your sentence. Should have you and I have been sentenced? Yeah, but you've been released from your sentence. And you've been pardoned and have access. Now, it's that joyous future of the believer in Christ, the writer of Hebrews closes out this chapter referring to the glorious future. Look what he says. To those who eagerly wait for him, that's Jesus, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So that same Jesus who came the first time as a humble suffering servant to die for our sins on the cross, to raise again, to make a way of salvation is coming back to earth again to finish the last stage of the salvation process. He's coming again a second time for salvation that is to complete the salvation process for his followers and that is to liberate us from the presence of sin on this earth and to bring us home to heaven. When Jesus returns the second time, he's coming, it says here, not in reference to sin or dealing with sin as his first coming was about, but this time he is now coming back in power and victory as a glorified king to claim his followers and to bring us home to the eternal destiny and place that he's been preparing for us and to set us free from the presence of sin once for all in our lives. For those who know and love and follow him, he says, verse 28 there, that is those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him to come back the second time. To bring us home, to, to complete this process of salvation that we first experienced when we came to Christ. For those of us longing for his return. Jesus said in John 14, 
My father's house are many mansions, and if it were so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And look, even as when we first believed upon Jesus for our salvation, we experience relief from the punishment of our sin. We experience relief in that moment from the guilt of our sin. We experience relief from the power of sin, no longer having to dominate our life. But now we've been set free from a life of slavery to sin. Well, when Jesus comes the second time, He's going to bring relief again. And this time it's going to be relief from the presence of sin. It's going to be relief from having to deal with the conditions and the hardships and the pain and the sickness and the suffering. And He's going to deliver us once and all from having to live in a world that's cursed with sin and the problems it causes to people and the families and the destruction, the devastation, and we're going to find relief from all that sin's doing to this world. Complete relief. He's going to give us salvation, deliverance from that. For those who know Jesus, if not by death, there's an early departure that comes to all of us as He rescues us from this world and relieves us from it. Listen to what your future holds if you are a Christian this morning. Relief from all that we endure in this world that's sinful. It says this, Revelation 21.4. Let me leave you with this. Please hear it. Here's your eternal destiny. It says, Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Imagine the reality when all the pain your own and others and living in this world that you see happening and you experience through your whole life all the pain is gone. There's no more pain. No more death, no more suffering, no more sorrow. All the pain is released. And at that moment, I think we'll fully understand what it means that by His stripes, we're healed. Because everything's healed as we're in the presence of the Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?